0: Thank you, Ray. Good morning, church family. As we uh, continue in worship, I uh, just want to remind you that it's our aim to worship uh, holistically, not just with our voices and with our ears in singing God's praise and hearing from his word, but also in praying and in giving and being part of the body. And so... Uh, We have an app uh, that we make available for people to be able to do that. And so there's a QR code that you can scan if you're old school and prefer to do so on paper. If you're a visitor, there's a little visitor card that you can fill out and drop off at the visitor center straight through those doors at the end of the service. We also have something called a connection card where you can jot down a prayer request or just to let us know that you're here. And there's also paper envelopes uh, for you to give as well and a drop box at the back of of the auditorium. Uh, This past Sunday, I was away uh, preaching at a church in Hamilton. It's actually the church that when my... Uh, Great grandfather and grandfather came from Scotland. This is the first church that uh, they attended, and then my dad grew up at that church. So I was able to go there with a couple of my sons, and so uh, sort of five generations uh, uh, have have been uh, in that church uh, worshiping. And so it was a real joy uh, to be uh, to be there. And while uh, you were here, while I was away, you were learning about uh, knife sets and the Toronto Raptors and. Uh, a keyboard, and uh, how all of these things, all they're so unique, and all these unique knives, there's one mission is to cut, and even though basketball players come in all different shapes and sizes, the one mission is to score baskets, and we have all of these keys on the keyboard, and some of them seem like they don't matter as much, but with one isn't working, we, we can't type, we, 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 we aren't able to do what we want to do, and of course, Phil Darko shared all of these, and so I would like to call these a illustrations. Um... And uh, they're very, very helpful in us understanding how we relate together as a church family. And uh, immediately following this service, I'm going to be meeting with a bunch of the leaders in our Hope Kids ministry, uh, talking about how to teach... The Bible and one of the hardest things to do in teaching the Bible is to come up with illustrations uh, an illustration that actually unpacks and explains the the meaning of the text and and an illustration that that will be relevant to everyone that you're listening to that's one of the hardest things that that you can uh, uh, the the hardest task for the Bible teacher is illustrations and uh, up Phil's uh, illustrations last week uh, Clearly uh, explained how we have one source who is the Holy Spirit who has given a variety of gifts. Just like a keyboard as variety or a knife set or a basketball team to accomplish one goal which is the common good. Now thankfully for this week I'm pretty much off the hook because the whole passage that uh, I'm teaching on uh, this morning is one large illustration Maybe you noticed as Ray was reading in in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members. And then down in verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. And then verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The title for today's message is this, one body, many members. Members, one body with many members. God has designed the church to function like a body, a a collection of organs and limbs, members that come together to form one body that's inseparable and that's interdependent. And the body metaphor, the fact that we are inseparable and interdependent, should foster unity and humility in our hearts. That's Paul's aim. He's trying to remind the church, time and again, there's many members, but one body. And because of that, we should be characterized by unity and humility. Key to understanding all of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is this word charismata. And uh, Phil mentioned in his message that this word means grace gift. Now, sometimes when we think about spiritual gifts, that's actually not what the text says. Uh, It it just simply says grace gift. And it's a word that's used all over the New Testament. I mean, probably one of your favorite verses has the word charismata. In it, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe that verse, heads up, you're a charismatic. <laughs> because that's, that's, the, that's the grace gift. That's what, to be, that's what charisma, charismata, actually is referring to. And what, what Paul is trying to get at in Corinth is that people were taking some of these grace gifts... And using them in, in terms of establishing their position or status in the church. That people that had certain gifts had lost sight of the fact that they were gifts. And they thought that somehow they were able to perform these spiritual duties. Because they were somehow spiritually superior. Not recognizing that just like salvation is a gift, we all deserve death. But God has given us the gift of eternal life. No one deserves the gift of teaching or the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues or the gift of helps or administration. No one deserves those things. They're all gifts. No one earned it. It was simply given to them by the grace of God. Of God. And so Paul is going to try to clear up a lot of misconceptions in the Church of Corinth, and we're going to listen in on his conversation with them to try to help them get straight about the gifts of God and what it means to be the church. And there's really five things that Paul is trying to communicate to the church at Corinth that the Spirit wants to communicate to us as well. Here's the first one: that we are all members of one diverse body. We are all members of one diverse body. Now, the body metaphor is not something that gets introduced in chapter 12. Paul has been talking about this in the chapters leading up to where we are right now. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 17, when he was talking about food sacrificed to idols. And then he was linking that to communion, the food that we eat, the bread and the cup, when we remembered Christ's death and burial and resurrection. He said, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. The bread is connected to us as a body body. And then he follows up in 1 Corinthians 11, 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That when we take communion, we remember the body of Christ. We, we, think, we think in terms of Christology. We remember the incarnation that Jesus came to us in a body as real as the bread that we're holding in our hands. But we're not only thinking in terms of Christology, which is the study of Christ, but also ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. That we are not just supposed to look up to Christ when we hold the bread, that we're supposed to look around to one another and remember that we belong to one another as a body. Now look with me at verse 12. He says, he says just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. I I illustrated it uh, here in, in just using a tab on my word processor. Just as the body is one, and has many members, and the members of the body, though many, are one body. One body, many members, many members, one body. This is what Paul uh, communicates so clearly in verse 12 and all throughout the rest of this chapter. But then he says something surprising at the end of verse 12. Do you see it there? He's talking about the one body and the many members and what we would expect him to say is, and so it is with the church. But that's not what he says. He says, and so it is with Christ. Again, just like when we take the bread at communion time, we think simultaneously about Christ and his church. His body and his body. In the same way, when, when we think about church, loved ones, we, we can't think about the church apart from Christ. He's the, he's the head. He's the foundation. It all, he's the alpha and the omega. It all starts and ends with Christ. Remember when, when Paul... When, when, when he was going by the name Saul and he was persecuting the church, right? He's going from place to place, arresting Christians, throwing them in prison. And he's on his way to Damascus and he meets Jesus. And then what does Jesus say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because what he was doing... To persecute the church was not merely happening to the church. But the church and Christ are so interconnected that he was persecuting Christ. In the same way that when we use our gifts to serve the body of Christ. When we care for one another and love one another as the church. It's as though we are caring for and loving Jesus. We are all members of one diverse body. And then In characteristic Paul form, he moves from one member of the Trinity to the next. He talks about Christ and then look at verse 13. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And all were made to drink of the one spirit. So again, he says one spirit at the beginning of the verse and one spirit at the end of the verse. He talks about being baptized in the spirit. And he talks about drinking the spirit. When someone becomes a Christian, it's a work of regeneration. It's a work of rebirth that is done by the Spirit. Remember what Phil mentioned last week earlier in chapter 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord unless by the Spirit. The Spirit baptizes us. He surrounds us. We're immersed in the Spirit. And the Spirit fills us like we drink. So the water on the outside, baptism. Water on the inside, drink. And that is what it means. That is is how you know that someone is a Christian. It's the Spirit. It's not whether or not they can speak in tongues or whether or not they can prophesy. That's why Corinth was so off track. It's the Spirit. And the Spirit reveals himself in a variety of different ways. So he says that you were baptized. That's something that happens on the inside. And that we drink. That's something, sorry, baptized outside We drink something on the inside. The spirit surrounds us and the spirit fills us. The spirit cleanses us on the outside and then fills and refreshes and strengthens and energizes us on the inside. And spirit baptism is what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Some churches teach that spirit baptism happens later, after you become a Christian. That's not what the Bible teaches. As soon as you become a Christian, you are baptized in the Spirit. You drink the Spirit. And then to symbolize the spirit baptism that all of us have, being immersed in the Spirit, we go under water baptism which is a picture of what the Spirit has already done in us and our identity in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So everyone that Paul was writing to, who was a follower of Jesus, had experienced spiritual baptism because they were baptized in the Spirit when they became a Christian. And then all of them, because they were members of the church, had undergone water baptism, which was to simply symbolize and visualize What had taken place spiritually and invisibly. But he says to this group of people. Hey listen we've all been baptized. We've all been filled with the spirit. He says it doesn't matter. Verse 13. Jews, Greeks, slave or free. Paul's really building some momentum now. He's covered a lot of ground in the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And he's mentioning here something that he really hammered home clearly in chapter 7. Remember that this idea of our primary calling being following Jesus and that whatever our secondary calling is, whether we're married or widowed, single or slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, that's a Jew or a Greek. Paul says all of that is now secondary. Now, this message has never been more important for the the church in North America than it is today. Because everything in our classrooms, in our media, on the news, in our entertainment is continually trying to divide people according to their ethnicity or their race or their background or their socioeconomic status or their gender. And, and trying to create these, these structures of, of, of oppression and victimization. And, and, and trying to, to, to define people and have their core identity based off the color of their skin or their gender or where they grew up or what their socioeconomic background is. Now, the Bible does not negate those things. That's to say that those things don't exist. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says there's going to be people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. So we celebrate all of those things, but those things is not fundamentally what defines a Christian. A Christian is fundamentally... De- defined by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and their desire to follow Jesus. That is their primary calling. He mentions Jews and Greeks. The, the, the Jewish people would have had, they would have been on the inside track religiously because they would have been familiar with all the Old Testament stories and they, they would have known uh, uh, who God is because they would have been brought up that way. So Religiously, the Jewish people were on the inside track. They were in a position of privilege. Uh, but the, the Roman people, they might not have been, had been in a position of privilege as it comes to religion. But in terms of politics and in terms of fitting in with the broader culture, the Roman people would have had a, a leg up. But Paul says, listen, we're all one. We're not dividing into these different groups of People. If you're Jewish, that's great. It's just you're Christian first. If you're not Jewish, that's great. But you're, you're a Christian first. If you're slave or you're free, if you're a man or you're a woman, all of that's fine. But that's not what identifies you. Your true identity is found in Christ. And Paul says, even though we're so diverse. you got Jewish people, non-Jewish people, men, women, slave and free, single and married. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many So we celebrate what makes us unique and delight in the fact that God has brought us together to be part of one body. So that's the first thing. We all are members of one diverse body. Here's the second thing. We all belong. We all belong. Look with me at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You see, there was because tongues was being so elevated in the church at Corinth, people that didn't have the gift of tongues were starting to think, well, maybe I'm not truly a Christian. Maybe maybe I don't really have anything to contribute when we come together and worship. And, And Paul says, no, no, no. Every member belongs. We all belong to the body. You see, there were two distortions happening in the church at Corinth. There was people who were thinking that they were superior. The tongue speakers. That they were somehow more spiritual. But there were also those who thought they were inferior. The people that didn't have that gift. Because of the, the people with the superiority complex, it was producing a group of people with an inferiority complex. And that's what Paul illustrates with these people who are he characterizes as 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 the foot versus the hand or the ear versus the eye. You see, loved ones, the temptation for us is to think that when we come to church, we're the audience, that we're the clients or the customers. And the people who are doing the work of ministry are the people who are standing on the platform and have the microphones. And, and they're the ones who are contributing. And all, all we're doing is just sort of passively receiving what other people are. That's, that's not how it's supposed to be. We are all members. We are all contributors. You might think that your attendance here this morning is merely attendance. That the seat that you're filling is just merely ornamental. It's, it's, it's not necessary or needed. That if you've decided not to come, it wouldn't have made any difference. Loved ones, when we choose to come, when we choose to gather, when we choose to identify with the body, it matters. Simply singing matters. The people who serve the body through singing are not just the people with the microphone. When you come and sing your heart out, you have no idea which person, maybe a few rows down from you, is being so crushed by the burdens in their life right now, they can hardly lift their head, much less lift their voice. But the fact that you are singing your heart out is ministering to them. We all have a role to play. The people who time after time, I don't know how many times I go to the cafe to buy a coffee or something like that, and the person at the cafe says, oh, someone's already paid for it. That's a huge, how many of us get blessed in that way by the random generosity of other, the people are contributing, the encouragement that happens outside in the foyer. I just went from person to person to person in between services, just being blessed and encouraged by other people. Don't think that you're just some sort of passive recipient of other people's ministry. You are in ministry. And and we all have something to contribute. Don't think that because I don't have this guy, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a worship leader, I'm not a pastor, therefore I don't belong. You do belong and you do matter. Look at what it says in verse 18. Oh sorry, verse 17, I'm skipping ahead. It says, if the whole body were in I... Where would, the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would this be the sense of smell? We, it, it's not just about one person or one gift. You think about someone with beautiful eyes. Key part of what I just said was that I put eyes in the plural. That eyes are beautiful in a pair and they're beautiful in the context of a face. If you take just one eyeball out of the context of two eyes in a, in a face, it's something quite different, isn't it? I'd love to do like a candid camera thing, you know, on a Sunday morning where I had like a swaddling cloth, like looked like a baby, and I just had like a, like a volleyball with an eyeball painted on it. And I would sort of like, sort of cradle it like this, and so you couldn't see what it was, and be like, oh, you know, so-and-so just had a new baby. Do you want to see the baby? And then turn it around, and then be like, ah! It's when we think that just one member of the body has it covered or when we think that one gift is more, it's a grotesque monstrosity is what it is. But yet that's what we do. That's what was happening in Corinth and loved ones. It's what happens in the church today. We all belong. Then thirdly, we all depend on one another. We all depend on one another. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. God has arranged each person with each gift and has brought them to be part of this church family according to his plan. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body we all depend on one another. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is the, the people who th- thought they were superior because I have this gift. I don't need anyone else. These are formaldehyde Christians. These are Christians who are dismembered from the rest of the body. That, that when a certain body part might, might be impressive in the context of a body. But if you cut it off, and p- it's going to automatically die. The rest of the body will suffer, but they'll figure out a way to get, to keep going. But the member that cuts themselves off from the body is cutting themselves off from life. They will die. And so to say, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. That's not how God intended it to be. He intended that we would all depend on one another. Look what it says in verse 22. On the contrary... The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The people who think that they're inferior. And even other people in the church agree. Yes, you are inferior. You don't matter. Paul says those people are indispensable. Next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday at 11 o'clock. We're going to have a Hope Kids fully opened up until grade 3. 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And there's going to be some indispensable people who you probably won't see. You won't even know whether they served or whether they didn't because they're on the other side of of a wall there. But they're creating an environment where young, exhausted parents can come and worship free from anxiety, hopefully for 90 minutes straight without being called back in there. And and those indispensable members of the body are going to be not just babysitting, but pouring into and discipling these kids to love and follow Jesus Christ. That is indispensable. The people who clean up and tidy and arrange and manage the finances and do all of these things in the background of our church, they're indispensable, but they go so often unnoticed. We don't we don't live stream for people in the home, the people who cut the grass. We don't live stream the people who labor over the finances to make sure that, that everything adds up at the end of the month. We don't live stream. Those people don't get microphones. There aren't light shining on them, but they are indispensable. Paul says in verse 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable. We bestow the greater honor. We celebrate those kinds of roles. And then he goes on. He says. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. I think we know what Paul means when he's talking about modesty and unpresentable parts. But again. Think about how essential those parts are. Even the parts that are covered up. When something's not working with one of those parts. That's a big problem. And again. Think about life if you didn't have those parts. Think about your life if your parents didn't have those parts. They are essential, even though they may not be highlighted, even though they might not be mentioned in public. And that's in some ways, that's a good thing. But they are absolutely vital. We're all members of one body. We all belong and we all depend on one another. Look at verse 24. It says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That's God's plan. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body. That the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's the Fourth point, we, are all, we all care for one another. We all care for one another. Paul says there could can, there can be no division. Division's been a huge problem in Corinth. It came up in chapter 1, verse 10. They were divided over, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. They were divided over sex and marriage. They were divided over food sacrifice to idols. They were divided over all of these things. And Paul says, no, you're a body, you can't be divided. They were even divided in how they were practicing the Lord's Supper. Paul wants there to be no divisions among the body. And that we would have, see that in verse 25, that we would have the same care for one another. There are some members of our church family that just get this. That when one member of the body is suffering, they go to that member, they support that member. Whatever practical needs that they have, they pray for them, they encourage them, they cancel them, they counsel them, they don't cancel them. And and when, when, when a milestone happens, when there's a reason to celebrate, when a prayer is, is answered, that another group of people come right along and they celebrate and they, they party and they rejoice together. When one member suffers, the whole body suffers. When one member succeeds or rejoices, then we all rejoice together. We, we, we all know what it's like. That, that, that when, when the Olympic sprinter runs, runs the race, the, 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 you know, the, the CBC broadcaster afterwards doesn't say, I'd really like to congratulate your legs for the good job they did running. No, you congratulate the whole body. The, the legs did, yeah, the most of the work, but it's the whole body that gets to celebrate and, and, and rejoice. And In the same way, when part of the body suffers, I mean, we all know what it's like, right? When you're trying to hammer something. And it's just a tiny little part of your body. But when this part of your body suffers under your clumsy hands with a hammer, your whole body, your your feet start to hop around, and maybe tears start coming out your eyes, and maybe some things come out of your mouth. Your whole body is participating in the suffering of just one tiny part of a part. That's, that's, That's body life. We rejoice with one another. We suffer with one another. So we're all members of one body. We all belong. We all depend on one another. And we all care for one another. And then lastly, and this is the big one, we are all uniquely gifted. We are all uniquely gifted. All of us have been given a charismata. All of us have been given a grace gift That as Phil shared last week, we have been given it so that we would give. That we have all been given a unique gift so that we could serve the common good. So look with me at verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then... Okay, hold on a second. Hasn't he just been saying over and over and over again for 27 verses to say, stop putting a hierarchy of gifts. Stop saying that one gift is more important than the other. And now he turned around to verse 28 and he says, first apostles, then prophets. Paul, help me out here. I, I don't understand. Now, when we think about it though, think about the gifts that he's talking about. Actually, he's talking about offices. He's talking about People who serve in positions, not just gifts. And I believe Paul here is talking about the chronology of revelation that got the church started. How did the church get started? It started with the apostles. They were given the message of the resurrection and the gift of eternal life. And then the apostles partnered together with New Testament prophets. We'll talk about that in a second. And then that was passed on by the teachers. That's how the church got started. And then you have the the other gifts of miracles and healing and and helps and all of that. And again, when we saw tongues and miracles and healings in the New Testament, every time there was a miracle, there was a message. Every time there was a sign, there was a sermon. The point was to give the apostles the opportunity to speak, or the prophets the opportunities to speak, or the teachers, right? The, The miracles were always subservient to To the message which was conveyed first through the apostles, then the prophets, and then the teachers. So he's not saying that one gift is more important than the other. He's just outlining how Revelation came to to establish the New Testament church. So he starts in verse 28 with the apostles. So we're first introduced to the term apostle early on in the gospel of Mark. Jesus has an all-night prayer meeting by himself. And then he calls all of his disciples to himself and he centers out 12 of them. Mark 3.14. He appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That's really important because the word apostle means to be sent. An apostle is a sent one. So Jesus called them apostles. He brought them to himself so that they would be with him. But the whole point of bringing them to be with him was so that he would send them out. That they would be apostles. But then when we get to the other side of Easter weekend after Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We have the apostles are in, uh, uh, together with all of the other disciples. They're in an upper room in Jerusalem and but now there's only 11 apostles remember judas he betrayed jesus he committed suicide now there's only 11 jesus had established 12 so they start looking at the old testament and prophecies about the one who would betray uh, the, the son of man and here's here's what they here's what they conclude one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the apostles say, listen, we've only got 11, we need 12. And so they lay out, here's the criteria. It needs to be someone who's seen the resurrected, they, the resurrected Lord. They must be able to give witness, eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. So, what is an apostle? An apostle is someone who's been personally sent by Jesus and someone who has personally witnessed the resurrection. When we see the word apostle used in the New Testament, the majority of the times that it's used, it's used elsewhere in other contexts, but the majority of the time when it's used in a technical sense, it's describing someone who was personally called by Jesus and who saw the resurrected Lord. Now, Paul referred to himself as an apostle in this very book, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, Andrew walked us through this, uh, this passage. Paul said, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That, what are Paul's credentials for being an apostle? The fact that he saw on the Damascus road, he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. But he also says something, we'll get to this later. As we work our way through the rest of this book, in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven and 9 when Paul is sharing his testimony, he says, Last of all, Jesus appeared to him as one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Last of all, Paul understood that he was the last of the apostles. Paul, Paul understood that, that he, he, was, he was the last one. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, remember when Herod uh, uh, arrested Peter and James and James gets executed? They didn't have another meeting to replace James. The the office of apostle had come to a close. Now, people might still function in, in apostleship type roles. People might have a special calling to be sent out into certain situations. But the official office of an apostle doesn't exist anymore. Now, what about, what about prophets? Well, prophets seem to go hand in hand with apostles when, when we talk about the early church in the New Testament. Let me show you what I mean. So, in, in chapter 11, verse 28, we have the word apostles and prophets. Look at, look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. Members of the household of God, that's us, that's the church, built on the foundation of... Of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets together played a foundational role in establishing the church. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. The mystery of Christ. The gospel. The fact that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. The mystery of Christ has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. They go together. They're joined at the hip. And then later on in Ephesians chapter 4 it says... He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the question is, Paul here is listing apostles and prophets and teachers. We know we still have teachers in the church, but do we still have apostles and prophets? Now, different churches would disagree on on this matter some churches would still use the term apostle but they would use it in a different way some churches would still use the term prophet but use it in a different way some churches still use the word prophet and the word apostle and they think and they mean that they are like the new testament apostles and prophets and that's a problem like as if i could add to first corinthians because i'm an apostle or i'm a prophet that's that's kind of sketchy but here's what here's here's how we would answer the question Are there prophets and are there apostles today? There's there's really two parts to the answer. Number one, apostles and prophets, notice I'm using a capital A and a capital P, played a foundational role in establishing the New Testament church. There's no question about that, that there was this this special role that was played and somehow the two roles are connected together. But number two, although church members today may be gifted with apostleship and prophecy, we no longer have the office of apostle or prophet in the church when Paul's writing to Timothy and Titus telling them to get the churches organized he tells them to appoint elders and appoint deacons but he doesn't say hey and make sure you appoint some apostles and some prop no that's not what he says that there there was a, a temporary role that was established for these individuals to build up the body of Christ so there aren't now I know that was hard. I just got to warn you, it's not getting any easier. Okay, so let's, let's keep reading uh, in verse 28. God's appointed first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. So what do we do with all these other gifts? Gifts of healing, gifts like miracles. I mean, helping, we can understand. We've all been helped by people. Administration, as it's listed there, refers to a captain of a ship or, or the pilot on a, on a boat. Someone who's giving orders and charting the course. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word, administration, is used to someone who gives good advice, good guidance. Someone who can kind of navigate through the stormy waters of life. That's the gift of, gift of administration. But then you got tongues, miracles, gifts of healing. So we've got to ask ourselves, are all of these gifts available to us today? And generally speaking, the body of Christ is sort of roughly divided into two groups. One would call themselves uh, the cessationism group. And the other group would call themselves the continuationism group. Cessationism, just think of the word cease. They believe that the gifts have ceased. Cessationism, the supernatural gifts of healing, tongues, prophecy, and miracles have ceased. Either when the canon of scripture was completed or at the death of the last Some people believe that we shouldn't expect miracles. We shouldn't expect tongues or prophecy in the church today. That was unique to the apostolic period. And now we have the Bible. So we don't need people to speak in tongues. We don't need prophecy. We don't need revelation. So some people believe the gifts have ceased. Other people would characterize themselves as continuationists. Meaning that the supernatural gifts of healing, tongues, prophecy and miracles have not ceased and are available for the believer today now hope church would 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 find themselves in the continuationism uh, camp uh, we believe that uh, god is a worker of miracles he's the same yesterday, yesterday today and forever and that and that god can still use these gifts today now, there are many people who are part of the Hope Church family who are cessationists, and we're so glad to have them apart. As I mentioned, cessationism and continuationism is not like a first-order doctrine. It's not like the most important thing. It's not even something that we should really are, like the second most important thing or the third most important thing that churches and members of churches can still worship together and serve together, even if they have a different understanding of these gifts. But even when I talk to the most hardcore continuationist. who who is regularly expecting and praying for the manifestation of the Spirit through tongues and prophecy and miracles, way more than what I would feel comfortable with. I call myself charismatic with a seatbelt. Even when I talk to a continuationist, and even when I talk to the most hardcore cessationists who have strong convictions that that, 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 those those continuationists over there, those charismatic churches over there are way off course That most of them, when I actually sit down and talk with them, and this is so important that when we have disagreement with one another theologically, that we don't assume, but that we actually sit down and listen to them rather than building up little straw men and paper tigers and then trying to destroy, actually listening. I find that continuationists and cessationists can agree on these two statements. Here's the first one To answer the question, are all the gifts active today? Here's the first one, and this is for the continuationists, the people who believe that all of the gifts are for today. They would, most of them, would agree to this statement, that the ministries of Jesus and the apostles represented a unique season in history where miracles were frequent. Even, you know, a Pentecostal pastor or a charismatic leader would still recognize that what they are praying would happen in their church is a far cry From rise, take up your bed and walk. And walking on water and water into water. They they understand that there was something unique that happened. Just like the ministries of Elijah and Elisha was unique. Just like Moses and the plagues was unique. These were not everyday kind of things. The, The book of Acts records them as being descriptive to explain what happened. Not prescriptive in terms of what should happen. So most continuationists would recognize that. The ministries of Jesus and the apostles, that was a unique time. And even the most strict cessationists, and many of them, they're brothers and sisters in this church. And, and, and as I've shared with them, they would also, even though I believe the gifts have ceased, they would, they would agree with statement two. God is still unpowerful and unchanging. He is able to and willing to perform miracles today they may not believe in the gift of prophecy but they would they would believe that god could speak through a person in a certain situation they they, they would believe that someone could have the supernatural ability to speak in a different language if god wanted to they would believe in god still being able to heal so loved ones these are These are are, are two groups that really so often divide. It's amazing. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 12 is Paul wants to help us be more united and more humble. And unfortunately, the discussion about spiritual gifts has not rather than making us more united and more humble, it's made us more arrogant and more divided. And we got to come back to what the Bible teaches about these things. Because Look at what he says in verses 29 to 30. Look at all these rhetorical questions. And you can guess what the answer is. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to all of those questions is no, 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 no. Nobody gets everything, but everybody has something. No single member has been given every gift. And no single gift must be given to every member. This is is where the charismatic movement really starts to begin to get off track is when they take tongues and they make it just like they did in Corinth. They take tongues and they make it the test for who the really spiritual people are. Yeah, you were baptized with water and yeah, you kind of have the spirit when you first become a Christian, but it's not until you get a second baptism. It's not until you start to speak in tongues that you're now, you've reached that higher level that was, that was what the church of Corinth taught. And unfortunately, despite 1 Corinthians 12, that is what many charismatic churches teach today. And that's just wrong. The message of the New Testament is that not, no one, there's no, not one gift that everyone is supposed to have, but that everyone has at least one of the spiritual gifts. And that kind of teaching has led to all kinds of anguish and heartache and anxiety among the people of God who simply want to love Jesus, but they feel like they're inferior because they keep being told that they need to manifest the Spirit in this one very narrow way. Then in verse 31, he says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. We're going to get into what he means by the higher gifts when we get into chapter 13 and chapter 14 after uh, the Easter weekend. But it is interesting to note that when you look at all of the lists in 1 Corinthians 12, there's two of them in verses 4 to 10, and then in verses 28 and 29, and all the lists, and even in the rhetorical questions, the last thing on the list is the thing that the Corinthians would have put up first. The last thing in both lists is tongues. That we're not supposed to elevate one gift. And so, loved ones, this, as far as I know, isn't a huge problem at Hope Church, the idea of elevating tongues. But I do think it is a problem at Hope Church to elevate certain gifts, gifts of teaching, gifts of of leadership, uh, thinking that, well, we're sort of passively receiving what other people are giving to us. And I'm not really here to contribute. I'm just here to, listen, we have the same problem here. That it's not just the people with microphones uh, that uh, are here to minister, that we are all called to minister and that when the people of God come together in submission to the spirit and focus on Christ, God can do some amazing things for his glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have made us inseparable and interdependent. I thank you that those who may seem optional or additional to the body of Christ are, in fact, indispensable. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church family. Help us, first off, as individuals uh, to be committed to personal ministry in Hope Church. Not to passively receive, but to actively engage and give and serve. Lord, help us to be able to do that in, in the next 15 minutes and help us to be able to get our calendars open and figure out ways that we can do that regularly midweek or on Sunday morning using our gifts for your glory. God, we love you and we thank you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit, the spirit who has baptized all of us, the spirit of whom we have drunk deep from the wells of salvation, I pray that your, your spirit would lead us and help us, guide us into truth and direct us, we pray.